Now, it's time for the Cybersecurity News Bite with Jim Guckin. Cybersecurity News Bite Podcast, Episode 17, for May 9th, 2022. Researchers developed exploit for the latest F5 Big IP vulnerability, USB-based, wormable malware targets Windows installer, attackers use event logs to hide fileless malware, and unpatched DNS bug puts millions of routers and IoT devices at risk. So, this week, security researchers have found and developed, well, they developed an exploit uh, for the latest F5 Big IP vulnerability. The exploit's been out there for a while, but they actually developed the exploit itself. Uh, this is being tracked as CVE 2022-1388. It has a CVSS score of 9.8 out of 10, so kind of serious. Uh, this CVE relates to an iControl REST authentication bypass that, you know, kind of once it gets successfully exploited, leads to an opportunity for that malicious actor to execute remote code. Not the best thing you want to see. Um, <clears throat> it can allow an attacker to gain the initial access and take control of the affected system. Now, some of the things that people are worried about, which is deploying cryptocurrency miners and dropping web shells. Now, if you have a big IP product, uh, here's the impacted versions, uh, 16.1.0 to 1.2, to 15.1, and 13.1 to 13.1.4. Now, it also does impact two other versions, uh, but if you have these versions, if you have version 11.6.1 to 11.6.5, or 12.1 to 12.1.6, yeah, you're, you're in trouble because there will not be a security update for those two versions. 13, 14, 15, and 16, you'll get a, a patched version as soon as that's out. But if you have an 11 or 12 version, be very cautious uh, because they are not going to receive security updates. But the uh, big IP uh, did say there are ways to apply some workarounds. They're not the best workarounds, but they're workarounds. Um, so if you have 11.6 or 12.1, you can block the iControl REST access through the self IP address. You can block the iControl REST access through the management interface. And they also recommend, and you have to go to their site for this, modify the big IP HTTPD configuration. That'll make sure that you are safe while utilizing this. But really, you really should be migrating to a newer version unless there's something really big going on and you cannot do that. Now, security researcher Kevin Beaumont has warned that there are active exploits being attempted in the wild. Meaning this is not one of those things where, yeah, researchers developed the vulnerability. Hackers are already trying to get into these systems. And they're being detected. Now, it is great that there is a proof of concept. But now there's a proof of concept that I'm going to say the public. But malicious actors can now reference and cause a big problem with. So, if you have a big IP... F5 application or device make sure you are updating that thing as soon as the security vulnerability patch comes out for that and 
in the meantime, or if you can't wait for the upgrade or you can't do an upgrade, highly recommend following their workarounds to help protect your environment as long as possible. Now, ironically, this is something we haven't had to talk about in a while, which is a wormable malware. And this one is, for fun of every security researcher out there, a security uh, engineer, it's USB-based. You know, we all scream that, you know, USB devices, don't plug them in, and everyone just kind of ignores you. Well, here is another example you can send out, which is why you need to be careful of it. So, this new wormable malware is being dubbed Raspberry Robin. Great name. Sounds like an ice cream, honestly. Uh, it's been active since September, so it's been around for a while, but it kind of started to spike in January. It uses USB drives to get onto Windows machines. It then uses the Microsoft standard installer to kind of spread and legitimizes its own processes to install malicious files. Once again, using that installer. So very dangerous. So kind of how this attack uh, appears to be going. The worm appears as a shortcut LNK file, which is a link file, uh, masquerading as a legitimate folder on an infected USB device. So they don't see the .lnk, they see what appears to be a folder. The worm updates the user assist registry entry and records execution of a ROT13 ciphered value referencing an LNK file when deciphered. So for example, what this means is uh, researchers have seen its, um, let's just say the value is Q cybersecurity news byax It's being deciphered as the D drive as recovery.lnk. So it's being very tricky in that thing. It uses command.exe to read and execute a file stored on the infected drive. Now, uh, it uses uh, command.exe typically to launch two processes which is explore.exe for internet access and uh, msiexec.exe. Now, anyone in the computer field for long enough should tell you those are not ones that are uncommon to us. They, they're ones that are very legitimate processes. Now, it's interesting is because when it's using uh, either one of these, it uses mixed case letters in its commands. Usually when you see malware, everything's kind of in, in, in one case. So it appears to be using mixed case, so capital and lowercase letters, to avoid detection easily. It uses msiexec.exe to attempt external network communications to a malicious domain for uh, command and control purposes. It launches a legitimate Windows utility, uh, which is fodhelper.exe, fodhelper.exe, which in turn spawns run dll32.exe and then it executes a malicious command. It uses this because it can get elevated privileges without requiring the user account control prompt. You know that, hey, are you sure you want to do this? Put your password in and stuff. It gets around that because it's using legitimate Windows processes. So it's, it's kind of a scary thing out there. So once the worm spreads via the USB to someone else's machine, it's using that MSI exec.exe to call out to its malicious infrastructure. From what they found, it 
seems to be compromised of a lot of uh, QNAP devices, which we've talked about in the past. It uses HTTP requests, which contains a victim's user and device names. So it's not trying to encrypt anything. It just says, hey, I'm going to call this website, which would look like normal traffic to anyone else. And it has information on there that should be dangerous. And sometimes it's been caught using uh, Tor exit nodes to hit its command and control server. So it is kind of tricky sometimes. Now, eventually, after it makes this communication out, it installs malicious uh, DLL file on the infected USB. Uh, researchers really, and this is what kind of scares me, researchers have not yet figured out how or where the Raspberry Robin malware infects external drives. So they're not sure if it's from the machine itself or if it's coming from the outside. Um, I just, I don't like personally not knowing the attack vector. Um, because you don't know, is it spreading from one to the next? Is it, is it that kind or is it um, something that people, you know, mal you? So it's very dangerous. They also, which another thing is scary because I'm not a security researcher, but I pay close enough attention to them. They don't know why the malware installs its malicious DLL file. Now, they believe that it may be an attempt to establish persistence on the infected device, though they don't have enough evidence on that. So it's it's kind of really scary. And what adds to it even more is they're not even sure of the threat actor group who might be causing this, which should give you chills because there's a lot they don't know and they don't know who's doing it. Um, so another reason to put a pin on why USBs should not be able to be plugged into machines and ran because this malware right here will find legitimate files and then use legitimate processes to install itself on the machine. And then you have to try to find the infected USB device, which is kind of hard without plugging it into another machine. So very dangerous. Uh, make sure that you're on the lookout for it and do your best to stop USBs at all. I, I know, you know, I know it's better said than done because most places still love them, but here's a very good reason why it could be scary. Now, similar to our last story um, on unknown threat actors, there has been a malicious campaign that has started to utilize never-before-seen technique for quietly planting fileless malware on target machines. Which is kind of genius if you think about it, because you know we have all this stuff to scan files, so if it's fileless, and we'll go into why what makes it fileless, but the fact that it is fileless is genius. So the technique involves injecting the shell code directly into the Windows event logs, which allows the adversary to use the Windows event logs not only to help spread their code, but to cover up the, the late stage malware, the Trojans that they're launching. So what we've seen so far is the attackers are using a series of injection tools and anti-detection techniques to deliver the malware payload. Now, this is a mix of commercial and non-commercial software. There's at least two commercial products that the researchers have found. Now, they also found several late-stage remote access tools and anti-detection wrap wrappers that the malware actors are running later on. And if you haven't figured already, these are more advanced techniques than your small groups who are doing this. So definitely someone who knows what they're doing, especially considering a lot of this code 
as I said, has never been seen before, so it's brand new. So here's how the attack kind of works. The target goes to a legitimate website. Now, whether this is a website that um, the attacker kind of directs you to, and it's a real website. That's what I mean by legitimate. It's, it's a real website. Um, it's not like a spoofed website. It doesn't look like anything else. It's a real website um, that they drive you to. Um, they pretty much want you to download a compressed dot rar file this rar file is booby trapped with cobalt strike and silent break the commercial products we spoke about and these are kind of the vehicle they use for delivering the shell code and the good thing is these two softwares use separate anti-detection decryptors making it harder for us to find it and the digital certificate for cobalt strike module varies so there were 15 different stagers from wrappers to last stagers that were signed. Um, so they are using a wide tactic when it comes to this stuff. So next, they leverage Cobalt Strike and Silent Break to inject code into any process. Uh, they do this so they can inject additional modules into Windows system processes or any, any kind of trusted application. This layer of infection chain decrypts maps to memory and launches the code in the memory. Now the ability to inject malware into a system's memory is what classifies it as fileless because it's not running on your hard drive. It's all running in memory, meaning if you shut your machine off, it, that code is gone. It leaves no artifacts because it's fileless on the hard drive. And as I said, because they do this, it's hard for your signature base security and forensics tools to kind of find it because it resides in memory. The second, which a lot of security professionals and I do it too, the first thing you do is when you, when you think someone is infected with something is hopefully you just disconnect from the network. Some people like to just have the machine shut down. In this case, you do that and the code is gone. Now, the technique where the attackers hide their code in the computer's RAM and use native Windows tools such as PowerShell and WMI isn't the new part of this. I, I'm, I want to make that clear. A lot of people are like, well, that's not a new technique, Jim. I've seen it before. Yes, it, that's not new. But what is new is how the encrypted shell code containing the malicious payload is embedded into the Windows event logs. Now, to, to avoid the detection, the code is divided into 8 kilobit blocks and saved in the binary part of the event logs. That's just amazing. Because that wouldn't be the place where I would look for that kind of code. But that's where they hit it. So it's in event logs in the binary part of the code. Now it drops a file called wer.dll. And this is a loader, which ironically wouldn't do any harm without the shell code that's hidden in the event logs, because that's where it gets its codes from. The dropper searches the event logs for a... Um, an event with the category 0x4142, which translates to AB in ASCII, and having the key management service as a source. So those are the two things you want to look for if you're looking for this malware. Now, if none is found, the 8 kilobit uh, chunks of shellcode are written into the information logging messages. After all that, a launcher comes in. 
It comes into the Windows task directory. It runs a separate thread and combines the 8 kilobit pieces into the completed shellcode. And then it runs it. And the dropper module also patches native API functions related to the event tracing and anti-malware scan interfaces to make the infection process even stealthier. So, this is still somewhat of a new tactic, but it's one that, you know, a lot of people out there are selling you on products that may use signature-based stuff, where, hey, I have this idea, I know the malware acts this way, here's the way we're going to track it. This makes it a little trickier, but if you're watching the uh, event logs, especially the ones around um, that specific function, well, then you might be able to hopefully kind of get ahead on it before it starts to going to pull itself together. So new malware, new technique. This is the game we play as, as security analysts, security engineers, security researchers. They're always going to try to build a better tool. And our job is to kind of stop that better tool before it becomes, you know, kind of more of a problem. Now, for our final story, something that most red teamers, people who try to purposely hack systems, uh, have probably tried more than once, but here's another version of it, which is an unpatched DNS bug is really putting risk for people with routers and some IoT devices, honestly. So right now, there is, it's unpatched. It's an unpatched DNS bug. And this is created with using the popular standard C library, UCLIBC and UCLIBC-NG. This allows attackers to mount DNS poisoning attacks against millions of IoT devices and the routers that are using the same code to potentially take control of them, if not at least direct the traffic to wherever they decide. Now, this impacts all versions of UCLIBC and UCLIBC-NG. So that code, which as I said, is being used by a lot of routers, it doesn't matter what version it's running, it's, 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 it's impacted. Now the flaw itself is caused by the predictability of transaction IDs included in the DNS requests that the library generates. So, hey, I need to go to Google your computer reaches out and figures out what, what you know what the IP address of Google is. That ID that your router or your IoT device is generating is something that's predictable. So hackers knowing that predictability can kind of perform man-in-the-middle attacks. So DNS poisoning, for those who may not be familiar with that term, uh, is also called DNS spoofing and DNS DNS cache poisoning. They're all the same term, which is uh, pretty much feeding a DNS client forged responses. It forces a program to perform network communications with whatever the malicious actor defines as the endpoint. So in some of my early hacking days in man in the middle attacks, I would poison the DNS cache saying, hey, if the person goes to facebook.com, point it to my computer with this fake facebook.com uh, web server running on it. So that's the danger of this because you can point direct, you can point it there and then the, the computer or the end user 
will believe it's the legitimate source. Now, there are numerous, as always when it comes to these things, uh, affected devices. If you have Linksys, Netgear, and Axis are all impacted, and Linux distributions such as Embedded Gen 2 are impacted as well, because these use the C-L-I-B-E. I'm sorry, U-C-L-I-B-C. Uh, they all use that. Now, the U-C-L-I-B-C-N-G is a fork of U-C-L-I-B-C. It just sounds like I'm saying letters now. That fork was uh, specifically designated for OpenWRT. So WRT, which is a very popular, uh, has the same uh, fatal flaw to it. And it's common for OS and routers deployed through critical infrastructure centers to be using this code. So, as I said, what can they do with a successful DNS poisoning attack? Well, they can perform man-in-the-middle attacks, they can reroute network communications to servers they control, making you think that they're them. And honestly, if they do a good job, you would never know. And the attacker could steal and or manipulate information transmitted by the users and perform other attacks against those devices completely compromise them in some cases. So you think about this, you go to a website, you type a password in. If they're a good programmer, they take the they take that username and password. They see it because you send it to them, even over an encrypted channel, to their server. I've seen their server then pass it on to the legitimate server and then feed you back that page that you were supposed to log into. They have your credentials. You never even known you were compromised. And then if it's a system, then they can try to use that to remote back in and cause problems. So uh, make sure, take a look, see if your device is impacted by this. Um, and if it is, just be very careful. I, I really don't know how to, unless you have some kind of um, detection system to be able to see this. Um, but it is out there right now. It is unpatched currently. Uh, so it is dangerous, but this is kind of where security is. We find stuff quickly. It's great to get the news out there um, because it lets people prepare and do their own tactics. On the other half, um, you know, bad guys know it too now. So uh, do what you can to protect yourself. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. Be safe online, and we'll talk again next week. You've been listening to the Cybersecurity News Byte with Jim Guckin. Learn more about our show at cybersecuritynewsbyte.com. 